Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. Let's see, I think it's been... Well, put it this way. It was four weeks ago when we were last in Genesis. So I hope you remember Genesis. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, for good reason, but it's been a while. And I hope you have the handout from the back table. That will probably help you follow um, the things we have to cover from this text this morning. As you see there on the handout, the title of the sermon this morning is Blessing Out of Conflict. Blessing Out of Conflict. I want to begin, before we get into the text, by uh, a very brief review of what just happened earlier in Genesis 29. You recall Jacob... The heir of Isaac, the heir of Abraham, so the heir of all God's redemptive promises. Jacob had to leave his home in Canaan to go to his uncle Laban in the area of Haran or Padan Aram. He was sent there for one thing to find a wife from his relatives there instead of a Canaanite wife. For another thing, though, his mother knew he needed to be out of out of Canaan so that his brother Esau wouldn't kill him. Jacob had used deceit, and again, none of the people involved in the scenario in the family were guiltless. They all had uh, egregious sins in the matter, but Jacob had used deceit, trickery, cheating to get both the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. And so Esau wanted to kill him, and Jacob had to leave. So for more than one reason, Jacob is... Now with his uncle Laban. And we saw in, in earlier in chapter 29 that Laban is quite the schemer himself. And God, in his providence, though he had met Jacob at Bethel by his grace and given him huge and wonderful promises, apart from anything Jacob ever did, though God had given him great promises and he was following through on those promises, in the process... In his providence, God made sure that Jacob learned what it felt like to be cheated, deceived. And now, Jacob and his now two wives find themselves in a very bad situation. So, I'd like to just introduce this by talking about how two sisters and their husband (laughs) made a bad situation worse. Leah and Rachel were manipulated by their father Laban to swindle Jacob in the worst of ways, in the matter of marriage. Their father treated them, Leah and Rachel, like mere property, and now they were stuck as sister wives in their marriages to Jacob. Leah was stuck as the wife Jacob never wanted. How would you like to be that wife? Rachel was the wife for whom Jacob was unjustly forced to work twice as hard and who came into marriage with her sister already there as a rival wife. This was a bad situation, as I said, but the way Leah and Rachel and Jacob handled it, as we'll see, made everything worse. We're going to see each of them live out patterns of selfishness, And keep perpetuating petty conflicts. And yet, also, God has mercy on each of them. And he shows that even their weakness was for his glory. So the big idea, as you see in your notes there, is that God used interpersonal conflicts to prosper his people in the end. God used interpersonal conflicts to prosper his people in the end. Let's look at the account in this text before we get to the applications. First of all, well, you can see in your notes again, there's two conflicts here in the text we'll tackle today. First of all, the childbearing conflict. And second, the wages conflict between Jacob and Laban. First of all, the childbearing conflict. Verses, well, chapter 29, verse 31. 
to chapter 30, verse 24. We'll start by just reading verses 31 through 35 at the end of Genesis 29. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So the first movement, the first phase of this childbearing conflict is that God gives hated Leah sons. God gives hated Leah sons. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, common expression in the scripture for God, it's not that God didn't notice, now he notices, but it's a language that we can understand to describe how God addresses someone's affliction. The Lord saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb. He, he gave her the ability to conceive while he withheld that from Rachel. Rachel was barren. As Meredith Klein says, by granting unloved Leah sons first, and ultimately half of the twelve, she ultimately has six sons, including the royal messianic line of Judah and the priestly line of Levi, the Lord showed that natural human advantages are not the key to success in his kingdom. Again, you've seen this throughout Genesis. The Lord loves to intentionally do the unexpected and pick the those who we would not favor uh, naturally in in, um, in our evaluation of their success. The Lord picked Leah to start giving Jacob sons and to start building the nation of Israel. The Lord is compassionate to people in hard spots, even though they're sinners. And the Lord loves to raise people up who are pressed down under a heavy load. In this case, Leah's heavy load of being unloved, even hated in a sense. Of course, um, there's discussion of the nuances of that word hated. Uh, in the scripture, it can just simply mean unloved to a degree. But certainly, Jacob, it seems, actually resented her because he never wanted to marry her. And yet, God gave Leah sons first. Well, this happens. She bears four sons. And now we see, verses 1 through 13 of the next chapter, that now Rachel and Leah enlist their slave girls in this conflict. Rachel and Leah enlist their slave girls in the conflict of childbearing. We'll see why in a moment. Start reading in verse 1. Of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, meaning he's given me justice, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. 
Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. One note, it's a little less important for the storyline, but of course, I hope you noticed, first with Leah, and then when the the two maidservants were having sons, um, each name refers to something that that either Rachel or Leah perceives happening in this childbearing conflict. (laughs) Um, Each name uh, lists, uh, is um, a wordplay somehow on some advantage they think they're getting with this son. Further attachment to their husband or... um, uh, or happiness that has come, or good fortune, etc. One of the best names is Judah, where she, where Leah doesn't focus so directly on the conflict, but she just says, this time I will praise the Lord. So the idea of praise is in the name of Judah. But, Richard Belcher puts it well here, as we look at this conflict, he says, each wife wants what the other wife has. Leah is seeking to be loved by her husband. And Rachel is seeking to have children. Such a dynamic sets up conflicts between the two women that leads to a race to see which one can produce more children. That's a fun conflict to have. Wow. So Bilhah, first of all, well, I should back up. Rachel, of course, notices that she can't have children so far and her sister Leah is ahead of her by four boys. And Rachel has had it. It says she envied her sister. So the sin of envy is at work in her. And she says to Jacob, you'd better give me children or I'm going to die. Maybe we don't feel that quite as sharply in our culture. But in ancient culture, particularly in the ancient Near East, If you were a woman and a wife who was childless, that was such a disgrace. It was probably one of the the highest aims of your life, to have children. And Rachel says, I'm going to die if you don't give me children, Jacob. Implying in her anger, unjustly of course, that somehow Jacob's at fault here. (laughs) So Jacob gets angry. And he says something that's very true, actually. In fact, I wouldn't even necessarily, I wasn't there, but I wouldn't necessarily accuse Jacob just because of what he said of sinful anger here. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob gets it. He's getting it more. God is the one who prospers or does not prosper people. Who gives or withholds his gifts. So when he responds with that, Rachel comes up with a plan. She says, well, dad gave me a maidservant, a slave girl named Bilhah. And in our culture, sometimes a woman who has a slave girl can give that slave girl as a second wife, a lesser wife, a concubine, to her husband. If If the primary wife can't have children, she can have the slave girl's children counted as hers. That's what I want to do, Jacob. Again, um, later these are called concubines. A concubine is a true wife, but of secondary rank. Um, Probably the big difference between a concubine and and, uh, another, uh, the regular kind of wife, is that uh, there was no bride price paid for the slave girl who was a concubine. Yet they were considered, in a sense, a wife. Uh, so, so Rachel says, I, I want her to give birth on my behalf. Literally, she'll bear upon my knees, which is sort of adoption language in Genesis. We'll see that later with Joseph as well. But here we go with the concubines again. Just as Sarah had urged Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, to sleep with her slave girl Hagar. 
Only this time, it doesn't stop when a son is born. The point this time is not to produce a single heir, as in the case of Ishmael with Abraham. The point is to obtain status by having as many children as possible to your name, and thus to compete with the rival wife. So now Jacob has four wives, each of whom are involved in one big messy rivalry for his affections and for the status of having children. See how this has gone from bad to worse to yet worse? No one's making this better. And notice that Rachel and Leah named the sons born to their slave girls. It's a way of claiming the children as their own. Bilhah doesn't name her own sons. Rachel does that for her. Zilpah doesn't name her sons. Leah does that for her. There's just two sides to this conflict that are scoring points. And it's interesting in verse 8 when, um, when Rachel says, with mighty wrestlings I've wrestled with my sister. Literally, with the wrestlings of God I've wrestled with my sister. That's interesting imagery. If you think forward a little bit to chapter 32, where Jacob will actually wrestle with God, and God talks about how Jacob has been striving with God and with men. (laughs) Well, anyway, we get to verses 14 through 21, where Rachel and Leah strike a bargain. Let's read verses 14 through 21. Rachel and Leah strike a bargain. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field, and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Why would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me. For I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Well, first of all, apparently, Jacob had largely or even totally withdrawn from giving Leah her conjugal rights. He was not spending the night with her. Perhaps this was partly because Leah did not immediately conceive another son after she had Judah. Jacob had a more attractive wife whom he loved and two concubines beside that. Why would he need Leah, the less attractive wife whom he had no intention of marrying in the first place? That's what Jacob apparently does. We find that out in this conversation between Rachel and Leah. Leah tells Rachel, you've stolen my husband. And she feels like she has to strike a bargain to get one night with her husband. If if these sorts of details make you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. You're going to get used to these kinds of details in Genesis. (laughs) It's very, very honest about the human condition and these sorts of matters. What are mandrakes? (laughs) I've had some interesting conversations with with people who had, had no idea, and I understand that. Mandrakes are a plant that carries a fruit that looks like a small apple. And it was known um, throughout ancient times as an aphrodisiac. Um, It had a distinctive, beautiful fragrance. Or as Andrew Steinman says, they were thought to be an aphrodisiac and a stimulant for female fertility. In fact, the Hebrew word for mandrake is related to one of the Hebrew words for love. So it was seen as a love potion. Let's put it that way. That's what mandrakes are. Well, Reuben, the oldest, who if you look at the timeline later, he's still a little kid at this point. Reuben, Leah's oldest, is out in the field. 
he finds mandrakes. He brings them to his mother Leah. Some say they might have had pretty flowers on them too. Uh, he brings them to his mother Leah. Rachel sees it and she asks Leah, Hey, can I have some of your son's mandrakes? Those look good. And Leah snaps back at her. Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? <laughs> so Rachel strikes a bargain. Well, then, he can be with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob comes in from the field in the evening, it's all set up for him. Leah says, you're with me tonight. I hired you with my son's mandrakes. I gave him away, so you better be with me tonight. And that's what happens. And can you hear the bitter resentment in Leah's response to Rachel? One small but insensitive request from Rachel sets Leah off. You already have my husband. Now you want my love potion? <laughs> but, in the end, God listened to Leah again in this situation. Rachel stays barren. So, as Derek Kidner says, the outcome was ironical. The mandrakes do nothing for Rachel, while Leah gained another son by parting with them. He also says this. I think this is very perceptive. He says, it's a further example in this family of trading in things that should be above trade, like your husband for the night, and resorting in trouble only half-heartedly to God. There's all this scheming going on. We don't find in this account, like we found when uh, Rebecca was barren, Isaac's wife, we don't find anyone praying about this, seeking God about it for more children. It's just all this interpersonal <clears throat> conflict, schemes, bargains, striking a bargain. That's what these people are doing. Issachar's name is a reminder of Leah's wages for giving Rachel her mandrakes, and of Leah's wages in her mind for having earlier given Jacob her slave girl in her place. She felt like that was an unselfish thing to do, that uh, she'd let someone else be with Jacob on her behalf. So she says, God's given me my wages because I gave my slave girl to my husband earlier. Now, what is Jacob doing in all this? What in the world, man? What are you doing? Richard Belcher says, Jacob is totally passive in these events and is presented as a hired stud. He is not a leader in his family, but is told what to do by his wives. He does not make any attempt to try to resolve the conflict, but rather is controlled by their scheming. And he's absolutely right. Or Andrew Steinman says, the striking feature of this part of Genesis is Jacob's passivity. He speaks only one sentence, chapter 30, verse 3. He names none of his children, and he even accepts his wife's determination as to with whom he should have relations. Thus, the patriarch received the fulfillment of God's promise, even when he was not actively pursuing it. As we said earlier, the big picture we'll come to see at the end of this is that God is using this in spite of all these ridiculous people. God told Jacob he would multiply him greatly, and he's doing it even through bad circumstances. And Simon also says, while Rachel may have remained the wife favored by Jacob, Leah appears favored by God with the ideal that in number of children, seven. In the scripture, seven is often the number of perfection. So she has seven children, six boys and a girl, Dinah. But then notice, just look at your outline a second if you have it. In this childbearing conflict, I think this is intentional this whole section, in the middle of the section, there's all this scheming, all this infighting, all the stuff that people are doing to get what they want, but it's sandwiched at the beginning at the end with what God does. In the beginning of all this, God gave hated Leah sons, and now we close the section with God giving barren Rachel a son. Verses 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her. 
which seems to indicate Rachel's now praying about it. God listened to Rachel and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. There's like a double word play here in the Hebrew for Joseph. Um, it reflects, first of all, the word for removing. God's removed my reproach, Asaph. And the word for adding. May the Lord add to me another son, Yasaf. And so in English we say Joseph. Rachel is saying God has removed one thing, my reproach, and he's replaced it with another. And may he add another son to me. She's anticipating even the addition of another son. Uh, Benjamin, who won't be born until the family returns to Canaan, that will be Jacob's twelfth and youngest son, and Rachel will be his mother. Meredith Klein says, The gift of new life was given not to Rachel, the beautiful favorite of her husband, but to Rachel the barren, who turned to God out of her hopelessness. God humbled Rachel before he gave her a son. He was merciful to Rachel too, but he knew he knew the right time to give her a son. And he did it. Rachel's mandrake love potion, for which she bargained with her sister and rival, that was useless unless God opened her womb. John Currid quotes Matthew Henry here. Um, I believe it's actually from a different text that Matthew Henry is uh, commenting on, but he said, whatever we want, whatever we want, it is God that withholds it. A sovereign Lord, most wise, holy, and just, that may do what he will with his own and is debtor to no man, that never did nor ever can do any wrong to any of his creatures. Did you catch that theme here? God is the one, in this case, who opens and shuts the womb. God gives, and God takes away. So Job said, right, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's a hard lesson to learn. We have to learn it. We have to learn, more importantly, to trust him even when he is withholding. And by the way, this childbearing conflict, getting back to the storyline here, this childbearing conflict was a rapid-fire conflict. Because if you, if you look at some later things that are said in chapter 31, for instance, about the timeline, it's clear that 11 sons were born to Jacob in the seven years that he worked for his uncle Laban because he married Rachel. Eleven sons in seven years. It also means that Leah had six sons in seven years. <laughs> also gives you some perspective on when she wasn't bearing children anymore. It was just for a little while. She didn't immediately conceive again. She was in such a rush to conceive. This was a rapid fire conflict. Now we come to the end of Jacob's second seven years. Okay, I should back up. Remember, Jacob had agreed with his uncle Laban that he would work seven years to get his daughter Rachel in marriage. Then Laban cheated and acted like, well, it's just the custom in, the, in this area that we don't give the younger sister in marriage before the older sister. Laban cheated and uh, tricked Jacob into marrying the older sister Leah. But then Laban said, if you work for me another seven years, you can have Rachel even before the seven years are up. You can have her now if you work for me another seven years. Okay, so we're at the end of the second set of seven years. And we come to verse 25 of chapter 30. Here we see the wages conflict. The wages conflict between Jacob and Laban. We'll read verses 25 through 34, first of all. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. 
Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Typical words from Laban. Just name your wages, I'll do it. No, you won't. This has happened before. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? Jacob is saying, I need to start my own flocks. I need need to have my own stuff for my own family. Verse 31, he said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb. Those would be in the minority in the flocks. And the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. It may sound strange to us that Jacob uh, asks Laban, uh, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. Um... But it seems this might be connected to the fact that children born in servitude were counted as the master's children, uh, more than children of of their parents who were servants. Um, And Laban, even later, Laban leans really hard on that idea from his culture. Later, in chapter 31, verse 43, he says, the children are my children, Jacob's children. but Jacob is also saying, hey, I'm not an ordinary slave. I'm your son-in-law, and I was only temporarily hired. It's time to let me go. With Just just so we're clear, with my wives and kids. (laughs) And Jacob knows that Laban is often up to no good. He's a deceitful schemer. So Jacob comes up with a plan, as Richard Belcher says, that will keep Laban as much as possible from swindling Jacob out of his real earnings pretty clear whether a sheep or a goat has a certain color or kind of wool (laughs) or hair. And the idea was, um, Jacob was saying, everyone will know that I'm being honest here. It's simple to check whether I've taken any animals that don't belong to me because we'll know by what they look like. Pretty simple, right? Okay, Jacob says, I'd like my own starter flock. Let me go through the flock and pick out this, what would have been a small minority of the sheep and goats. Let me take them out. They'll be mine. That'll be my wages, just so I can start my own household off well. And I'll also look after your livestock that aren't mine. Laban says, all right, we have a deal. But Laban immediately cheats. Uh, we said, I guess I didn't actually say, but um, verses 25 through 34, Laban retains Jacob's service on Jacob's terms. But, number two, verses 35 through 43, Laban's schemes are no match for God's blessing. Because there are schemes going on here. Verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Pause there. Laban cheated. Before Jacob could go through the flock and get the ones they had agreed would be his, Laban made sure they didn't exist in the flock. And fat chance... Too many of those just being born randomly from a flock that 
that don't look like that. Laban's just a jerk here. (laughs) But he's in charge. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now, there's conflicting opinions of whether there was any inherent usefulness to Jacob's strange plan, peeling these sticks, putting them at the watering troughs, all this. And I'm not here to solve it for you. Um, I could go either way. Uh, some, some think that this was uh, an ancient idea called the maternal impression process. Uh, there was this common belief that <clears throat> a vivid sight during conception or pregnancy would leave its mark on the offspring of the animals seeing this vivid sight. Uh, so, so some think this was uh, partly just uh, an idea common at the time, and God chose to bless it anyway, even though it may not have really worked on its own. Um, in fact, um, Calvin, John Calvin, thinks that the Lord actually told Jacob to do this based on what's said in the next chapter, and then God made it work for Jacob specifically. Um there's others who say there may be actually something in the, uh, as the bark was peeled off of these sticks that changed the um, nutrition <laughs> for the, the flocks as, as they were drinking there. And that could have affected um, the pregnancy and what, what uh, the color of the coats were of the young that were born after that. Again, I don't know. Um, just, just know that somehow... Jacob had a plan, and the point is, he did his best, in spite of all that was stacked against him, he did the best he knew how to, nonetheless, just work hard and see what God would do. You get that much? (laughs) And God blessed him. Jacob also, you saw, did some selective breeding (laughs) to make sure that, uh, well, Laban's already cheating me here big time so we'll we'll have the stronger ones mate that'll that'll produce young for me and the weaker ones will produce young for for laban's flocks so next next time we'll come to chapter 31 where jacob even adds some more information here about how laban has been constantly trying to cheat um and we'll find in chapter 31 that jacob has to has to secretly leave with his household and try to outrace Laban to Canaan. That'll be next time. But in the meantime, in spite of all that was stacked against him, in in spite of the fact that if we're up to Laban, Jacob would have nothing to speak of, yet Jacob, by God's providence, grew rich. Not only did he have flocks, he had male and female servants now. He had pack animals, camels, donkeys. Jacob, even without going back to his inheritance in Canaan, Jacob now, on his own, with God's blessing, has become a rich man, becoming wealthier by the day. And we'll see, when we begin chapter 31, that Laban's sons get it in their heads that Jacob must have cheated somehow. (laughs) Imagine that. Laban's sons complaining that Jacob must be cheating. Well, we'll get there next time. But again, what's the big idea here? Big idea is that God used interpersonal conflicts to prosper his people in the end. So what are some applications of that? 
Well, first of all, there is one negative application that we should take to heart, particularly as we think about Rachel and Leah and their their constant conflict. And it came out, excuse me, it came right out and said, Rachel envied her sister. So first application here, remember that envy will consume your entire life. Envy will consume your entire life. Leah envied Rachel, who had Jacob's affections. Rachel envied Leah, who had plenty of children. And that envious rivalry engulfed every aspect of their lives. Every aspect of their marriage and their family life and their sisterly relationship, even their relationship to God, was defined by whether or not he gave them what they enviously craved. Most of what they say about God in that whole text is all about what he's doing for me to get me ahead of my sister. At least for a number of years, their envy consumed their entire lives. And envy will do the same thing to you and me. So first of all, it will consume your relationship with your neighbor. This is why there's a 10th commandment. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet. The idea is desiring in a greedy way. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And as the Apostle Paul said before he was converted, he saw that in God's law and it stirred up all sorts of covetousness in him because we are covetors by nature, aren't we? And it leads to envy where we resent the other person because they have what we want. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A way of saying how it will tear you down as a person. And Christian love is the opposite of envy. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All the opposite of what we saw going on in our text today. The apostle in Galatians 5 tells the the churches of Galatia, Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love... Serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then down in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But not only will envy consume your relationship with people, it'll consume your relationship with God. It'll swallow that up too. James 3.16 For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But the next verse says, James 4.1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But then he says something surprising in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. When you are engaged in greedy, envious conflict, it even consumes your prayer life. Even what you ask in prayer is asked wrongly. In your selfish pursuits, you've sided with this covetous world against God, James says. Oh, you're praying, but even your prayers are hostile toward God. Beware of envy. It will slip in wearing the most wholesome of masks. It'll be full of self-righteous excuses, but envy is no friend of God or man, so beware. Beware. Second application. And this one is very positive. Remember that God took you out of messy circumstances. Let me explain. God took you out of messy circumstances. How does that relate to this text? Well, Genesis would always remind the Israelites about the mess from which God raised up their 12 tribes. This is the origin story of their 12 tribes, the 12 boys that became Israel. And they're being reminded, you started in a big mess. (laughs) Jacob's family emerged from a perfect storm of bitter rivalry and ruthless schemes. Yet that storm was God's instrument to form a people for himself. And though scheming Laban was too much for Jacob, Laban's schemes were part of God's plan to prosper Jacob in the end. Though Jacob's own household was ravaged by bitter rivalry, that rivalry was God's instrument to multiply Jacob as he had promised. So think a moment. What unbeatable foes, from which unbeatable foes has God rescued you? Laban was too strong for Jacob. But God ensured that didn't matter in the end. What unbeatable foes has God rescued you from? Have you forgotten? Have you gotten back in the mindset that you're a self-made person? Remember what God's done for you. How has God used those foes to do you good in the end? I'm thinking of thinking of Leah and Rachel and Jacob. In what inexcusable sins has God come to you in his grace? And how have the bitter fruits of those sins done you good in the end as they molded you into the image of Christ? God's blessing on Jacob and his family certainly wasn't based on their virtues or on their natural power. And yet he blessed them. Titus 3, verse 1. Paul tells Titus, as as Titus is to be instructing Christians in how to live, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And what he says next indicates that we need humility towards wicked people to do this. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jacob had an inheritance from God in spite of himself, and so do we. And never forget where you came from. Never start thinking you're a self-made person And all the good things in your life are to your credit. Israel had to remember that. They had to be reminded of it often, too, by the way. 
Third, third application. Remember that God advances his promises even by means of petty strife. Because God is God, he is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He decrees all things from the beginning. Though he is not the author of sin, and he does not tempt people to sin, yet he is big enough that still every detail of history is part of his plan from the beginning. And even when we find ourselves in the midst of petty strife, even if we're not the ones stirring it up, but it's being directed at us, even in that situation, God is using that to advance his promises. That's part of his plan. So what should we do with that? Knowing that God advances his promises even by means of petty strife? Well, two things. At least two things we have time for this morning. Number one, don't fear the schemes of unjust people. Don't be, don't be so shaken by what you experience that you're now driven by fear. Don't fear the schemes of unjust people. That person at work who is just out to get you. They are. <laughs> or who just doesn't want to uh, give you anything in fairness. That teacher in the classroom who just doesn't like you. (laughs) Or we could go on. Don't fear the schemes of unjust people. Jacob learned to trust God and work hard despite all that Laban had up his sleeve. And we have to do the same and not fear the schemes of unjust people. Just focus on what God's given you to do and what you can do and do it with all your heart. You can apply this to schemes against you personally, just on the individual level. See, if we replace fear with faith, we can respond with good and not evil. As Paul said, Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Meaning, don't let evil overcome you to the point where now you're doing evil things back. But overcome evil with good. Sometimes there could be schemes against your efforts for Christ. People who don't like your Savior. Or, maybe other Christians who who are just being petty. Paul did not allow himself to lose perspective when small-minded people were obviously trying to undermine his ministry. He could even rejoice that God was using their envious schemes for his own good purposes. Philippians 1, verse 14. And he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. People, Some people were preaching just because they felt themselves somehow in competition with Paul in his ministry. Paul said, that's okay. They're preaching Christ, and I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice. Sometimes there's schemes against God's covenant people, against the church as a whole. And sometimes we can get so wrapped up in the news, even in in real tragedies like happened in Nashville recently. We can get so wrapped up in fear of the enemies of the church that we forget the big picture. We forget who our God is. 
The church of God must not be consumed with fear by its opponents. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 13, Jesus quotes this later in the Gospel of John. This is talking about the new covenant people of God, the church. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. For whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, God says, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Remember that God advances his promises even by means of petty strife, even in the most extreme cases. Even when the petty envy and strife become murderous. That's foundational to the gospel story. God advances his promises even by means of petty strife. So, lastly, trust in the Savior slain by envious men. Trust in the Savior slain by envious men. Mark 15, verse 6, speaks of Jesus on trial before the Roman governor, Pilate. And it says, Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for the Jews one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pointing to Jesus, It says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And Peter, when he's speaking to a Jewish audience, he reflects on that. Acts 3, verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter just killed a lame man. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. You know, as we close, petty conflict is a a horrible thing when it's with other people. But what if you're someone today locked in conflict with the Son of God? What if that's your biggest problem right now? Have you perhaps been resisting Christ because you view him as a threat? Peter has the answer for you here. You need to realize that, first of all, if that's true. If you think Jesus is going to get in the way of what you want. Peter says, repent and turn, be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Envious people put Jesus to death, but that was part of God's plan. Without that context of envy, horrible as it was, murderous as it was, we would have no salvation. God means the very worst things in history 
for the very best blessings for us. And that's true of the cross. Have you faced Jesus, the one crucified, and seen him not as a rival, but as your only hope, as your Savior? Turn to Jesus. You you can't do anything we talked about so far in the sermon if you don't get this. Stop competing with Jesus, trying to do your own thing in your own life, and bow to him. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And they will be if you come to Jesus in this way. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. It's yours and not ours. You breathed it out. But it is for us. You gave it specifically for us, sitting here today even. Please open our hearts and our minds to it. And please don't let the preacher get in the way in any way of what you say here. May we all deal with you individually, just us and you. Help us. We are weak and sinful. Cleanse us if we need cleansing. Encourage us if we need encouragement in Christ. And Lord, as we mentioned at the end, if there are those whose real conflict is with Jesus Christ, please help them to end the conflict with joyful surrender, with trust and love for your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.